0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The Majority Report, On the Media, All In with Chris Hayes, In a Nutshell, The Tom Hartman Program, Activism from Veterans for Peace, and the Ralph Nader Radio Hour.
1: Memorial Day is a sober occasion. A day set aside for reflection on the irretrievable losses incurred by war. It's a legacy of the U.S. Civil War, which killed 625,000 people out of a nation of some 35 million. But to hear some conservative pundits tell it, there's something wrong about being asked to reflect on war, and questioning whether we could have avoided it is a metaphysical impossibility. History is an infinitely complex web of causations. Said New York Times columnist David Brooks, quote, to erase mistakes from the past is to obliterate your world now. You can't go back and know then what you know now. You can't step in the same river twice, close quote. Therefore, Brooks says, quote, the question, would you go back and undo your errors, is unanswerable, close quote. Well, the subtext here, of course, is that presidential candidate Jeb Bush's difficulty in answering the question of whether he would have invaded Iraq is completely understandable. What we should learn from Iraq, Brooks says, is the need for epistemological modesty. Quote, we don't know much about the world and much of our information is wrong. Close quote. Brooks does know, however, that the idea that the intelligence about Iraqi weapons of mass destruction being cooked by political pressure, a big political conspiracy to lie us into war, is a, quote, fable, close quote. Conservative columnist S.E. Cupp also wrote a column about the uselessness of asking a candidate to Monday morning quarterback the Iraq war. Quote, giving them a time machine isn't telling us anything, close quote. And Jeff Jacoby at the Boston Globe took issue with the field day journalists and politicians were having with Bush's trouble with the question. Quote, obviously there will be no do-over of the Iraq war authorization. The next president can't hop a time machine back to 2003. Close quote. Declared Jacoby, quote, history is always messy, especially the history of wars and their aftermath. Rarely does the decision to fight proceed as expected. Close quote. With all this talk about epistemology and the messiness of history, it's easy to forget that what Jeb Bush was being asked to do was not to travel through time, but to say whether or not he agreed with a decision made by the last president from his party, who also happens to be his brother, that was based on lies and resulted in the deaths of minimally half a million people. It's an important question whose answer is obviously not obvious. Iraq's population is some 33 million. The war and invasion are at least on the scale of devastation inflicted on the U.S. by the Civil War. When that happened to us, it left a wound that we're still commemorating 150 years later. When the U.S. does it to another country, somehow 12 years later, it's distant history that it's silly to dredge up.
2: days ago, um, Mike Morrell, who was – actually, I think he went on to become the CIA director, um, was a – was on Chris Matthews' show. He's on Hardball on MSNBC. And he has a new book out on the Iraq war. And among his many other positions in the CIA, he was actually George W. Bush's intelligence briefer. So he was the guy who the CIA would send over to the White House to brief uh, the president, President Bush, on WMD programs, Iraq intelligence and everything else. He was on Chris Matthews' show talking about that. And look, Chris Matthews does a really, really good job here with two things. First, if you look at what Mike Morrell's book says, he basically does state pretty directly – that, of course, Bush and Cheney hyped intelligence uh, in the interests of invading Iraq. Um, but the other thing that's happening in this interview that that Matthews is noting is that Mor- Morell doesn't really want to get into the motives or why Bush and Cheney lied, or even really acknowledge that they did lie, even though he essentially writes that they lied in his book. And the reason it matters, as Matthews points out really well in this clip, is because... The rewriting of history that's happening right now is just basically that, look, I mean, like Jeb said the other day, my brother was the victim of faulty intelligence. Um, you know, this was just a matter of uh, not getting the intelligence right. And that's why we engaged in this absolutely massive debacle and not what it really was, which was there was a, a preordained policy drive they wanted to invade Iraq regardless. WMDs was going to be the main selling point because people were freaked out. And they hyped intelligence and distorted intelligence consistently. Let's listen to Chris Matthews talk with Mike Morrell, and then I'll break it down a little bit more.
3: He has, in fact, reconstituted nuclear weapons. Was so, that true or not? So we were saying... Was that true? We were saying... Can you answer that question? No, was that's, that not
0: true. That's not true.
3: Well, why did you let him get away with it? Look, my job, my job, Chris, is You're the briefer of the president on intelligence. You're the top person to go in and tell him what's going on. You see Cheney make this charge. He's got a nuclear bomb. Then they make subsequent charges. He knew how to deliver it. He had the capability to deliver it. And nobody raised their hand and said, no, that's not what we told him. Chris, 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 what's my job, right? My job... Tell the truth. My job, no, as the briefer, as the briefer, Okay. as the briefer, my job is to carry CIA's best information and best analysis to the president of the United States, make sure he understands it, right? My job is to not watch what they're saying on TV and say yes. You think TV's s- a joke? What? You think it's a joke that Chinese that, said That's TV? not my job. Did that's you know not he did my that? job. No, I wasn't paying attention. I was studying what was so on my desk So you're briefing the morning. president on the reasons for war. They're selling the war, using your stuff, saying that you made that case when you didn't. So they're using your credibility to make the case for war dishonestly, as you just admitted. Look, I'm just telling you what. Well, you just what, admitted it. I'm just telling you what they we gave said, a false Chris. presentation of what you said to them. On some aspects. He had a nuclear aspects. weapon. I'm telling That's you. That's a we big said. deal. Chris, I'm telling you what Do you we agree. Said.
1: It's had a big deal. They claimed
3: they had a weapon when, he, when you know they didn't. It's a, no yeah. a big deal. Susan, your thoughts about well,
1: this? Well, here's, here's the other thing in, in Mike Murrell's book that I think is, is relevant to this, and that was a case where the vice president and his top aide, Scooter Libby, clearly was trying to distort the intelligence to make the case for war. And that was on the question of whether Iraq had a role with al-Qaeda before 9-11. The Prague
3: meeting, so-called. That's
1: right. And it was clear that the CIA concluded there was no connection, zero why connection. Why did Cheney say there was and a connection And the vice president, president always continued to make the so, case so as there You're
3: asking the wrong guy why I'm he said asking the right it. guy. Because we know weren't there and you were. I don't know why he said it. You need to ask him. Well the you don't only think thing it, is this too Chris, hard to deduce? He did it to get us into a war. Chris, Chris, <laughs> the only thing I can tell you is what we were telling the, the administration. Okay, in your right, book, you're, a, how how the, let's go back to your book, because I want to quote you. There were senior administration officials, most significantly the vice president, who continued to imply that there was a current connection between Iraq and al-Qaeda. This was inconsistent with the analysis, but the implications continued, all to the detriment of the American people's understanding of the truth. You're doing a good job here. And of Dick Cheney's <laughs> chief of staff, Scooter Libby, you wrote that, quote, Libby's attempt to intimidate a top CIA official was the most blatant attempt to politicize intelligence that I saw in 33 years the business and it would not be the last attempt by libby to do so
2: okay so there you have it this is fascinating on so many levels so because first you have mike morrell exemplifying the bureaucratic and weaselly mentality that you see all too often in dc in government in corporations and the intelligence services because he's saying in real time i'm briefing the president Then people from the administration are going out on TV and saying things that are not true. But I couldn't comment on that because I wasn't paying attention to that. Because my job isn't actually to look at what they're doing with this intelligence I'm presenting, it's just to present it. And then you go to the book and he actually hits Scooter Libby pretty hard, but for some reason won't say it unequivocally on television. And the other important part about this clip is every, look, I think most people remember Condoleezza Rice, we don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. Dick Cheney going out in September 2002 and saying, there's very clear evidence that Saddam was developing nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, Iraq's acquisition of aluminum tubes are being used to enrich nuclear weapons. The Niger claim, that was debunked by Joe Wilson. And then, of course, the administration tried to smear him and Valerie Plain. That led to uh, criminal consequences for Scooter uh, Libby. All of these issues, people within the inside of the administration trying to, to, to smear Wilson and Plain. But the really astonishing thing, and people don't even talk about this anymore because, you know, it's so much is focused on the false WMD claims and then the people like Jeb who are trying to rewrite history and say, well, everybody got it wrong. Well, do we remember the claims about the Prague meeting? They mentioned that. You had administration officials, including Dick Cheney, repeatedly referring to a meeting in Prague that took place uh, between an Iraqi intelligence officer and Mohammed Atta, who of course was the ringleader and on the planes in the 9-11 terrorist attacks. The direct claim that Iraq was collaborating with Al-Qaeda, which defied every type of logic, Political reasoning about the region, political rivalries, there was no reason to think that Saddam Hussein, who had certainly bankrolled and backed many more secularly oriented terrorists, would ever back Al-Qaeda. And there was just no real evidence for it. And it was consistently claimed. So we're getting to a point in the rewriting where now we're saying now people like Jeb are saying and Marco Rubio is saying well he made the right decision based off of the intelligence we had. We're going to everybody was wrong about the WMD, that's why this catastrophe took place. Wrong. They hyped and lied about the WMD and that's why this catastrophe took place. And we're not even discussing the even more glaring and mind-blowing lie, which was that somehow the Iraqi intelligence services were connected to Mohammed Atta. And I just want to say, it's a brief footnote here. When they say that everybody got the intelligence wrong, well, there were UN inspectors on the ground, there were people from the IAEA, people who were totally smeared by the right at that time, people like Hans Blix and Mohammed Baradai certainly did not have seen unequivocal evidence that Saddam had some type of dangerous global reach WMD program. Intelligence that was getting released from the UK was getting sort of questioned and debunked in real time. Robin Cook, who used to be a member of Tony Blair's cabinet, was a foreign minister at the time before the invasion, was in another position. He resigned from cabinet over the invasion, and I recall him saying that you might find trace materials and small amounts, but this certainly is not a global threat and a global danger. So a British cabinet minister seemed to somehow know the real nature of the WMD program. The Germans told us about, you know, that character, I think, curveball that we were relying on was incredible. The French didn't buy it. And now we're being sold the follow-up lie. And Chris Matthews did a great job Of not only debunking it, but reminding of everybody of why it was important, and Mike Morrell exemplified bureaucratic back-covering, essentially,
4: unbelievable.
0: joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoflef.com. <laughs>
5: The media's big question of the past two weeks, one that's sure to dog the candidates on the way to 2016, looks back to the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Here's Fox's Megan Kelly. Knowing what we know now,
1: would you have authorized
5: the invasion? The ultimate softball, right? And yet somehow, faced with hindsight questions on Iraq four times last week, Jeb Bush flailed four times starting at yes and ending at no and not just jeb here's marco rubio with fox's chris yeah, wallace
6: knowing every day as we no. sit here in 20, but that's not the way presidents don't
5: a president cannot make a decision I, I on understand. what someone
6: might know in the future but that's what i'm asking you was it a mistake
7: it was not a mistake for the president to go into iraq based on the information he was provided as president
5: Recently, such presidential hopefuls and would-be hopefuls as Ted Cruz, Scott Walker, Chris Christie, and John Kasich all agreed that, knowing what we know now, they wouldn't have gone in. So, good for them. They passed that test. But it doesn't matter anyway, because the question itself is a fail. James Fallows recently took on the issue in The Atlantic.
7: Every time people pose the question that way, as if it was a matter of just what the balance of evidence had been. They conceal the real history of the Iraq war, which was there was a drive to war way before there was any public discussion of the WMD. And the WMD became an excuse for something that was going to happen anyway.
5: A pretext, as uh, Paul Krugman wrote in his column this week. And you've reported that the war itself was predetermined. There are
7: people who argue that the security team that was around George W. Bush had thought that there was a non-closed loop in the war against Saddam Hussein back during the first Gulf War in 1991, that the effort to expunge this ultimate source of terrorism, in their view, would not be complete until regime change came to Iraq. What is absolutely certain is that within a day or two of the 9-11 attacks. There were discussions within the administration saying, we don't know where this came from, but we know that the answer has to involve Iraq. What happened in the middle of 2002 and late 2002 was this background concern about Iraq suddenly being elevated to the status of imminent national security threat. You had a Condoleezza Rice with her, you don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. Dick Cheney, with his famous speech, saying that we know for certain uh, Saddam Hussein was building these weapons. But it rose to prominence only after the troops were already moving, the plans were already drawn up for an invasion
5: of Iraq. So, if you knew then what we know now, it's a terrible question. Let's get to some better ones. You've suggested two.
7: Yes. And the first one would be very just for the record, matter of fact. If you think back of sort of the moments of decision in late 2002, early 2003, please tell us, Mr. or Madam Candidate, how you assessed the evidence and where you came out, just so we have a starting point of of what you thought. The real question is the next one. Tell us What you have learned from this experience, your own experience of assessing the information, the nation's experience in going to war, and how your knowledge will shape the assumptions you bring to the next commitment of force, how you think about the efficacy of military force in this part of the world, the lessons you have learned.
5: That question is very close to one former Defense Secretary, Robert Gates, asked WNYC's Brian Lehrer this week. The question that has value is, what lessons should we learn from our experience
8: in going into Iraq in the first place, the mistakes that were made there? What do we take away from that in terms of, for example, the limitations on our ability to shape events in this region?
7: Well, but I hadn't heard that quote until this second. (laughs) It's as if I had had internalized it. Secretary Gates makes the point better than I have in this, this past minute that we can't change the past, we can affect the future, and let's hear what our leaders have taken from it.
5: Why do you think so many interviewers seem to resort to asking the lousy if we knew then question?
7: Journalists are less expert on any given topic than the people they're speaking with usually. These are easier questions to ask without knowing a lot about the circumstances than some other questions.
5: What worries me the most about posing the question this way, on the basis that we went into war because of bad intelligence, that it seems to let the press off the hook for stating what we do know and it lets the political establishment off the hook from engaging with the questions of the real lessons of that war. It's, it's actually not just uninformative, but it's counter-informative.
7: Um, yes and yes. The next step I would take it is that after the last big bad experience that U.S. had militarily after the Vietnam War, there was, in my view, accountability. The press went through some examinations about what it had reported right or wrong. Certainly the military went through a prolonged and agonizing examination about how they had done so poorly. Lyndon Johnson was only the most prominent of the people who were punished politically for having gotten us into Vietnam. It's very hard to see signs of a comparably thorough exercise of accountability for the wars of the past dozen years, which were partly bad intelligence, but mainly other things. And so I think... Probably not intentionally, but the press's posing of this question is part of the ongoing aversion to accountability, saying we should learn about that, but also recognize specific people making specific mistakes.
5: So is the bright side of this kerfuffle over a bad question that at least it has us going back over Iraq?
7: I think that if the controversy began and ended with whether Jeb Bush made a mistake, whether Marco Rubio made a gaffe, then the whole episode would be a net significant minus for the collective IQ. If it might be the beginning of actually dealing with what the United States has done for the last dozen years militarily, perhaps this episode that began as a gaffe could become a positive exercise.
6: The White House admitted today that ISIS's capture of two major cities this week, Ramadi in Iraq and Palmyra in Syria, are a major setback in the international effort to degrade and destroy the extremist group.
7: I
9: would acknowledge that we have seen a setback in Ramadi. Uh, I, th- I think you could accurately characterize the situation in Palmyra as a setback. We have experienced important progress and experienced some important setbacks as well.
6: This crossroads in U.S. strategy on ISIS comes in a broader reexamination of the entire Iraq war and its trajectory, prompted by Jeb Bush's inability to state whether the war was a mistake. His eventual admission that it was seemed to signify a new kind of Republican consensus on the issue until Weekly Standard editor William Kristol, that broken clock who somehow manages never to be right, published this op-ed in USA Today, arguing, quote, even with the absence of caches of weapons of mass destruction and the mistakes we made in failing to send enough troops at first and to provide security from the beginning for the Iraqi people, we were right to persevere through several difficult years. We were able to bring the war to a reasonably successful conclusion in 2008. I sat down today with Richard Clark, former White House counterterrorism advisor and author of the new novel, Pinnacle Event, and I asked for his response to Crystal's op-ed
10: we opened pandora's box when we went into iraq and uh, some people said that beforehand and not many uh and all of the stuff that we're seeing today the rise of isis the disintegration of the state uh in iraq the disintegration of the state in syria uh i think is arguably directly uh connected to our invasion we destroyed the state this is what happens uh when you destroy a state uh you have chaos you have the rise of factions regional and, and uh, ethnic factions uh, and I think we can look at that decision uh, and say that's the reason that hundreds of thousands, probably a couple of million, if, if you add it all up, people have been killed.
6: You were speaking earlier about the way that we are currently fighting ISIS. Um, and I thought you made a really good point. It, it, basically, we have to decide whether this is something we actually want to do or not, as a, in, a, in a sort of deep democratic sense. Like, is, are we going to commit to doing this or not? Right. Because we're kind of doing it half-assed,
10: uh, and I understand why uh, the president and, and a lot of the American people who elected him don't want to go back into Iraq. They elected right. him to get out of Iraq, after all, and they're reluctant to go any further than we have. But you know, we have 3,000 troops there uh, as advisors, as trainers. And we could probably do what we need to do with that number, or only slightly more. But there are political decisions to be made, and I think the American people and the Congress ought to be part of that. Uh, and the Congress has been asked by the president months ago now to make a decision, to vote on the use of force against ISIS, and they've refused to do it. It's incredible when when the Congress is not asked. Uh, as has frequently been the case with a lot of presidents uh... they bitch and moan that they weren't asked and now we have a president who says okay i used to be in the senate foreign relations
6: committee uh... i know i should ask for this i've asked for this Nothing." okay but i want to press you on this point because i see a lot of a lot of the commentary on the u s uh... current military activities against isis seem to go along the current line Mm. we need we're not serious about this, we're not putting in uh, all that we could, and if right. we could, we could defeat them. And my question always is, of course, can the U.S. military defeat ISIS? Of course. Could it defeat the Taliban? Yes. Did it defeat Saddam's army? Yes. But then what? Yeah, well, you're, you're still left with the same then what question.
10: First of all, it's not clear that the American military defeated any of those people. Well, that's right. That's the point. Right? Uh, and I'm not talking about the American military defeating them. Uh, what I'd like to see is us equipping the Kurds, us equipping the Sunnis who are anti-ISIS and giving air cover uh, a lot more than we're doing to all of those people and even to the Iranian supported uh, militias which the administration is considering. Uh, You look at the number of air sorties that we're doing they're very low and the reason for that is we don't have forward air controllers uh so we
6: we don't want collateral damage so we're not bringing in airstrikes so so d- just to be clear here so you're saying there's a place between the kind of the full Lindsey Graham which is right. like troops on the ground actual reinvasion yep. of Iraq and what we're doing now that there is room to intensify what the u.s. is doing now uh... with basically the, the people that are there with the assets that are there
10: i think central command uh, which is our military command that runs that part of the world uh... has actually probably asked for permission to put advisors forward and been denied that's what i'm hearing
6: we helped covertly fund and support the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they, were, they were the, uh, some of whom became the Northern Alliance and some of whom became the Taliban and, and, and Al-Qaeda. I remember a day when they were sitting in my office. Yes, outside. exactly, right? I mean, if you look at this long longer, then we, then we had the war in Iraq, which has p- produced the chaos that created first Al-Qaeda in Iraq mm-hmm. and then ISIS. You know, it's hard to think that these decisions, it feels almost like we keep creating our own enemies. Well, we do. There's no doubt about it. And then we fight them. Yep. And then, what, like, how do you break that cycle? Well, I don't know.
10: And that's a, that's a, that's a good question, and I don't know the answer, but I, I do know this. We've got one now. Uh, whether you call it ISIS or Daesh, as the Arabs call it, uh, it's a large, capable force. It's probably got 25,000 fighters. It controls cities like Mosul with a million people. Uh, it controls a large swath of land, more land than dozens of countries have, more people than dozens of countries have. And it is going to be a terrorist nation sanctuary. It already is, where people from around the world go to get trained, get combat experience,
6: and then go back home. and. I think that's a threat to the United States. I can never be convinced by anyone that whatever actions we take militarily aren't going to produce whatever the next incarnation of the next threat is. Yeah, It could well be.
10: It could well be. But for now, we know that we've got this threat. And I think we need to do something about it. And it doesn't mean, Lindsey Graham's crazy by suggesting, and the other people are crazy by suggesting we send thousands of troops, full divisions again. No, no one wants to do that. We tried that. That did not work. the smart approach here is intelligence based driven using special forces using air power and arming the people out there who are on the other side and we haven't done that
0: cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive
9: way. I wanted to explain why why I don't think that uh... costa rica can be invaded costa rica has no army and thomas jefferson strongly argued strongly argued that we should have no standing army in the united states in fact if you you can easily google his first letter back to madison it was in december of seventeen eighty seven he was in Paris as the US envoy to France. Madison was in the United States. He had just helped write the Constitution. He sent the first draft of the Constitution to Jefferson. It was really kind of the final draft uh, of the uh, of, of the Constitution to Jefferson. Jefferson sends him back a letter saying, "What I don't like about this is that it does not ban standing armies during time of peace." He had a few other things he didn't like, you know, no no ban on commercial monopolies you know I, I, there's no unremitting uh, habeas corpus uh, he had he had a list of five things that he objected to but that was one of the most important he did not want there to be a standing army during time of peace and that debate by the way led in part to the second amendment it was supposed to be that the citizens themselves would become the army if we were invaded so just you know as a little thought experiment if you're living in uh, Nicaragua or El Salvador or Guatemala and I don't have a map in front of me but I think that they're actually that's No, Costa Rica is Central America, right? Yeah, so they're in the neighborhood, right? They all have large armies. If your country gets invaded and it has a large army and you're just the average, you know, working schmo, sh- right? What do you do? You figure the army's going to fight the war and the army's going to win or lose it, right? But what if your country has no army? Costa Rica has no army. I mean, they might have one now, actually. I haven't looked in the last year or two, but they didn't, for a long, long time, they had no army. This was Jefferson's model. So if you're a Costa Rican, and there's no army, and, you know, a nearby country decides to invade you, and you're the average Joe Schmo, what do you do? You go out and fight the you repel the invaders. You know, you know this is why Switzerland had. I again, I I don't know if they do or not at this particular moment, but historically Switzerland has not had an army because every citizen in the country is the army, and Switzerland has not been successfully invaded in what over eight hundred years. So, a if we really want to have peace in the world as much as we give it lip service the metaphor that we've been using that reagan once articulated peace through strength is an oxymoron it's backwards the idea that the the larger the military you have the more secure you are as a nation i believe is exactly the opposite of reality just think about it And instead, if we wanna if we wanna have peace in the world, what we need to do is demilitarize the world. Instead of selling the Saudis more weapons, and not just the Saudis, I mean everybody in the Middle East, instead of giving them all more weapons so that the area can stabilize, why don't we try to demilitarize the area?
4: Peace, my mind. My heart is still blind. But this summer haze will fade and I'll find the clarity on the into the wintry shivers Shimmering rivers Bring me quaking quivers Into the nights of darkness When the park is just a dance for chances Up into my room The bare unfettered floor Brings me to my watch Multiplying evermore And the skies arise and fall around me Bring me to my bed With
0: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism Move the Money Reducing the Pentagon Budget. This month, Congress spends a significant amount of time on the military budget for the following year. They debate the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA, and lay groundwork for foreign policy based on how much money can be spent, where, and on what. The National Priorities Project explains the NDAA and military budget process in super simple terms at nationalpriorities.org. First, the NDAA is an authorization, not an appropriation. It gives the government the authority to spend money and sets policy direction. Also, drafts of the NDAA are not open and transparent. Also, the current draft has Congress ignoring its own budget caps, allotting some $90 billion off the books to fund the supposedly over-Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And finally, the NDAA has billions allocated for equipment the military says it doesn't need or want and protects military contractors. Veterans for Peace is taking this opportunity to lobby Congress and engage those of us who would rather see our money invested in people and peace than war and destruction to let our representatives know we support a shift in policy. Use contactingthecongress.org to get your representative's phone, address, and social media handles and let them know that you support the Veterans for Peace priorities listed under the Legislative Update section of Take Action at veteransforpeace.org. Budget change demands include moving money from the military to urgent domestic needs like health, education, environment, and infrastructure, closing bases from wars waged in previous generations, reining in profits of Pentagon contractors, and auditing the Pentagon to eliminate waste— If you're looking for a way to get more involved with Veterans for Peace, registration is open for their annual convention, August 5th through 9th in San Diego, California. You can't miss the tab at veteransforpeace.org. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If supporting a budget that funds people, not wars, matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the Veterans for Peace campaign Via social media, so that others in your network can get involved. Activism.
1: Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down civil war, intolerance, AIDS, obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage
3: with action? We live in a country now where we seem to be in a state of perpetual war that is conducted by an all-volunteer army, meaning most of us don't have to bear any of the burdens. And it seems that the hawkish among our politicians are the ones who have never seen war the most hawkish. Which brings us to our first guest. Barry Leidendorf is the president of an organization called Veterans for Peace which is a global network of military veterans and allies who work to build a culture of peace by using their experiences to educate the public about the enormous costs of war. They advocate for dismantling the war economy, and they provide services that assist veterans and victims of war. We are honored to welcome to the show the president of Veterans for Peace, Barry Ladendorf. Welcome, Mr. Ladendorf.
4: Hey, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. And I'm very happy to have you here, Mr. Leidendorf. I'm going to call you Barry because we've known each other for a while. I'm a member of the Veterans for Peace. We had a meeting in Washington a few days ago with Veterans for Peace members. And what is most impressive to our listeners, I think, is a group of veterans going back to World War II and all the way since then that are the most vigorous and comprehensive advocates of peace which we're going to talk about today. Waging peace takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of stamina. And Barry is an exponent of that battle for peace. So I'm going to ask you right off, briefly discuss the goals of Veterans for Peace. If Congress listened to you and the White House listened to you, what would happen?
11: Well, ultimately, the goal of Veterans for Peace is to abolish war as an instrument of national policy. If we could get them to listen to some of the ideas that we have about how we could go about that, I think we could be successful. I think one of the things that has to be understood is that we have to create The notion that ending war is really possible. I think most of the public, most members of Congress, probably most people everywhere, think that war is inevitable. And I think we have to create a different paradigm, a different mindset, that we can actually end war. Don't
4: we belong to
11: a treaty back to the 1920s, abolished war? We do. What's the name of that? Absolutely, the Calabrian Treaty. In fact, that treaty outlawed war. There's a very great book by another one of our advisory board members, David Swanson, called. Called the year that we ended war and that war when frank kellogg who was the secretary of state at the time accepted the nobel peace prize for his efforts in that and in 1931 when he went to oslo norway to accept the peace prize he announced to the people during his acceptance speech that we had outlawed war Now, interestingly enough, while the Congress passed the Kellogg-Briand pact to ratify the treaty, which becomes, as you know, part of the Constitution of the United States because it is a treaty, the Congress also funded armaments for rebuilding the U.S. Navy at the same time that they were ending war. You know, that treaty has been ignored. I think there was one incident when uh, Russia was involved with the Japanese and the the world nations called on them as a signatory nation that they had an obligation not to do that, and they did pull back. That's the only incident that I am aware of. Although it was used a a young Marine officer who was able to get the attention through a friend uh, or a son of Franklin Roosevelt to get him to consider the aspects of the treaty as part of the Nuremberg war crimes, and that became part of the idea of aggressive war being a war crime, and it came from the notion expressed in the kellogg Treaty, but you're correct. Every time we go to war, every time we do, we are in violation of international law, and of course, there's a long history of that, particularly if you look at the history of the United States after World War II.
4: Yeah, I wanted our listeners to be reminded of that, because wars of aggression are in violation of international law. But another one of your goals on your statement of purpose, and listeners can get the statement of purpose, which is really remarkably concise and forward-looking, by going to the Veterans for Peace website. And it's veteransforpeace.org. Very simple, veteransforpeace.org. And one of the purposes is to increase public awareness of the costs of war and you have a rather dramatic way of doing it when you send letters out to your members. You want to describe that briefly, and we'll go to the other goals, too? Right,
11: sure. Well, to increase the public awareness of the cost of war, one of the things that most people will focus on is, you know, the cost of war is the, the loss of life. American service men and women who die are injured as a result of war. The cost to the people of the United States for the cost of war. We don't always consider the cost to the nations that we invade, bomb, and so forth, uh, the refugees that we create. We don't often consider, and what Veterans for Peace is doing more and more, is to try to broaden the scope of the cost of war, to include environmental damage. When you look at the tremendous cost of preparation for war and the conducting of war itself, the damage to the environment is monumental. When you think about the impact of the testing of nuclear weapons in the Marshall Islands between 1946 and 1967, I believe it was, where we conducted 67 nuclear tests at that time And the largest occurred on March 1st, 1954, Castle Bravo, which was a 15 megaton bomb that was 1,000 times larger and more powerful than the bombs we dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So when we talk about the cost of war, we talk about the environmental damage, and there's more to say about that if you want to get into that later. Another aspect of cost of war is our civil rights and civil liberties that people don't often think about. But if you look at going back even to the First World War, and how the Department of Justice had a group of some 200,000 people that they basically deputized to watch other Americans. And because their claim was that we only had a few hundred agents, we couldn't do all the work that needed to be done. So we had these deputized people going about spying on other Americans on behalf of the Department of Justice. And so we look at the national security state that we have today. Well, we know what Snowden has revealed about what the government is doing, listening in on our phone conversations and all of that. So those costs of war began to mount up, and I think that what the American people have to realize is that these endless illegal wars are a tragedy that we continue to pay for. And if you think of this as a factor in itself, and just the cost of war, if you think about since 2001, the United States is spending $8.36 million an hour for the cost of war since 2001.
4: Say that again, Barry. Say that again.
11: Yes. Every hour, taxpayers in the United States are spending $8.36 million for the total cost of our war since 2001. And if you think about this, just take out the part about ISIS, what we are spending every hour just for the actions against ISIS in the Middle East is costing Taxpayers of the United States, $615,482 an hour to fight these wars. And think of how that money could be better spent. You know, when the government tells us, you know, we don't have money for education, we can't fund health care, we can't rebuild our cities, we can't fix the infrastructure that is falling down, we can't fix the thousands of bridges in this country that are in this state of collapse. Think about that. And you think about, if I could just give you an example of California where I live, around 2012 california had a budget deficit of 25 billion dollars at that same time the cost of the taxpayers of california the proportionate share that taxpayers in california had contributed to the cost of war since 2001 was 160 billion dollars just for the cost of war that's not the defense budget that's the cost of the wars in iraq and afghanistan that was the burden that the taxpayers in california were sharing Or carrying, and meanwhile we have a 25 billion dollar deficit where we have to cut school spending, health care relief for those in need. So
4: all these figures, Barry, should be part of the discussion in the presidential and congressional campaigns coming up. And listeners, you should insist on this. You get very good material. On this, by going to veteransforpeace.org. Listeners should know that Barry was a commissioned ensign in the U.S. Navy in the mid 60s. He was in the uh, Pacific Fleet. He was working in the area of intelligence and foreign training. He was also Deputy Attorney General of the California Department of Justice, Graduate University San Diego School of Law. He has a big background to substantiate what he's been saying. Another goal I see uh, of Veterans for Peace is to, quote, to restrain our government from intervening overtly and covertly in the internal affairs of other nations. How about that one? Yeah, well, that's
11: really, you know, when you think about it, it started back in the 1950s, didn't it, when we had the CIA? And, you know, President Eisenhower made quite a point that he was not interested in any kind of overt wars. But the Dulles brothers managed to convince the Eisenhower administration that the use of the CIA in covert operations to overthrow governments was an acceptable foreign policy for the United States. And so along with the British, when they were particularly when British Petroleum was concerned about the potential loss of oil leases in Iran and Iraq when they were going to nationalize those. By the way, after democratic elections in which the people elected through the democratic process leaders that they wanted to have, and you look at Guatemala, where the president of Guatemala was a democratically elected governor, but the United Fruit Company, because some of the land was going to be taken and given to peasants who had no means of providing a living for themselves, the people in Guatemala, through the elected representative, the president, decided that it was their land and they needed to use it for the purpose of helping those people. But, of course, the United Fruit Company was upset by that, as British Petroleum and other oil companies were in the Middle East. And so it launched these covert efforts to overthrow the governments, and that's what we did. We overthrew democratically elected governments in Guatemala. We did the same in Iraq. We did the same in Iran. And so this sort of process has gone on. And so we're paying the consequences of that. I think it's pretty clear. When you look at what's happening across the globe in the Middle East, our policies there, we put into place the Shah of Iran, for example, which he killed then thousands of people and imprisoned thousands of others. And so when you look at it, is it any wonder that, as William Blum points out in his book, Democracy, America's Most Dangerous Export, that since the end of World War II, We have attempted to assassinate or overthrow over 50 different governments. We've bombed 30 countries. We have made millions of refugees in countries throughout the world. We've killed millions of people. And when you think about that, is there any wonder that we had the blowback that we had in 2001 with the unfortunate 9-11 incident? I mean, very unfortunate, but if you read Chalmers Johnson's book, Blowback, which he published in 1999, and by the way, he is a member of Veterans for Peace as well, He wrote the book and you could if you read that book, you can almost predict that 9-11 would happen. And I recommend to your listeners that that's a fascinating book to get an understanding of the United States foreign policy leading uh, during that period of time and, and unfortunately continuing today.
12: Hi, Jay. This is Elka in Fort Wayne. I have been listening to and, and enjoying the um, comments that are being made by folks calling in their thoughts on education. But um, I was just listening to the, I believe it was Ruben in San Jose, I was just listening to his comments at the end of the War on Drugs episode. And... Um, You know, I I do want to say to folks, it's not all bad. (laughs) You know, as I listened to him, I thought to myself, you know, Ruben, there is a dialectical model of education. It does exist, and it has existed for many, many, many years. It's called Montessori. (laughs) And so, you know, as a trained Montessorian, as part of my, uh, you know, education, as my teacher education, Um, When I was going through teacher education way, 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 way back in the day, all of those things that he described are exactly what, you know, the underpinnings, the basic foundational underpinnings of Montessori are. So, you know, even as we critique our current model of education and even as we sort of look at what's not working and, and try to figure out ways to hold those in power more accountable for the education of, you know, the young folks in our country, I want us to also keep in mind and remember that there are models out there and that one of the things we ought to be doing is making ourselves more aware of what does work and supporting those things that do work, supporting Montessori, supporting models that are Frarian in nature, that are uh, Montessorian in nature and that do truly have the interests of students at heart and are student-centered. Thanks, Jay, for the good shows. Have a good day. Bye.
13: Hey, Jay, Floyd. I just got through listening to a Democracy Now and we were talking about the uh, Cleveland police officer, Brillo, being acquitted of manslaughter you know how I am with, with this police brutality crap. I'm I'm plenty pissed off about it, but I thought I would have to, like, maybe put the amount of shots in context, right? Like, I know a lot of people don't know much about guns, but I know a lot about guns. He fired 49 rounds. 49. The Cleveland Police Department issues Glock 17. They will 17 rounds of the magazine. That means he reloaded twice. Twice, okay? 49 shots. If I got into a gunfight in Iraq, I would have had to reloaded my M16. It only little 30 rounds. Standard issue. So, he shot more rounds than, out of a handgun than an M16 holds. <laughs> 49 shots. Had he been issued a machine gun, an actual belt-fed machine gun, he would have had one round remaining because a standard belt is 50 rounds. Is that not shocking? How does one person shoot 49 rounds at relatively short range? But I got some... I I would like to talk to this guy because I want to know certain things like like what... I want to know how he did it. Like, what possessed you to jump on the hood of a car and, and, and shoot people? And, and also, how did you shoot them? Did you just, like, pump seven, eight rounds into one and then turn to the other one? Or were you going back and forth? How were you doing that? All while conveniently not noticing that they didn't have a gun in their hand or any kind of weapon. I mean, how did you do that? How did you do it? I, I'm, I'm fascinated to, to learn this. 49 rounds. 137 total fired, 162 police cars involved. So what is that? Assuming that uh, a few of the cars had, had multiple cops in them, that's over what? 200 police officers to chase two people? How scared are cops? How absolutely terrified are they? Or is it not that they're scared? They're just looking for action. They're looking for a chance to use their guns. They're looking for a chance to beat someone. Hey, I get it. Sometimes patrol's kind of boring, you know. Hey, you get a chance to be a part of something, you know. That's not your job. I don't know, Jay. I know I'm random. I don't even know what to say. But remember, everybody, be calm, no matter what. Stay calm, okay? Keep those protests calm, everybody. Because they'll listen to you eventually. It's fucking ridiculous. Anyway, Jay, uh knew what to say. I'm, I'm pissed off, and... Really just kind of feeling hopeless, quite frankly. And um, I don't really know where to turn that anger to, you know? I don't really know what to what to do with it. I mean, I'm not a resident of Cleveland, so, you know, I guess calling the mayor, you know, threatening to take my vote away isn't going to do much. Anyway, I, I'm, I'll let you go, man. I just, uh, like I said, I'm sorry for the rant. It was just a, uh, just a bad day. Have a good one.
8: Hey, it's Dave from Olympia, Washington, calling back on episode 292, and the voicemail's Chuck with the latest voice in a conversation about the source of school funding and should we rely on local property taxes for schools. So I just want to share a story of our experience here in Washington State, which is a wild and unique state in some ways. So, In the state constitution is enshrined the concept that basic education is the responsibility of the state of Washington. It is not the responsibility of the local school districts, although the local schools know hire the teachers to do that. But the state is supposed to be financially responsible for providing the basic education for all students in Washington the definition of basic education you can waffle around, but clearly quote-unquote extras were not covered by the state. Uh, you know, uh, football teams, stadiums. Uh, unfortunately, it's included music education and special ed. No, I think the state picked up the special ed. I digress, sorry. But, over time, the state was giving less and less revenue to the input school districts. And it got to the point where the state contribution out of state revenues into individual school districts was clearly less than it would take to fund basic education for their students. And districts made up the difference with local property taxes. And the districts that didn't necessarily have uh, a lot of capacity to raise property taxes because they were either in poor areas of the state or in uh, more conservative areas of the state where it's difficult to pass You know, property tax levy, those schools suffered. So, four years ago, there was the Washington State Supreme Court decision in a lawsuit where essentially the local educational service districts sued the state and said, look, it's state constitution, it's your responsibility to provide for basic education for our students. You need to start doing that. And, you know, court order. And, uh, you know, Supreme Court decision and the state legislature shall fund, uh, shall so fund this. So for the last four years, the legislature has been finding ways to fund basic education, K-12, in the state. Unfortunately, the side effect of this, and we're, I mean, Washington overall is a fairly liberal place, but there is a conservative element, and our state senate, is majority Republican and there's not any interest in finding new sources of revenue, even closing you know, fairly egregious tax loopholes. So in order to fund this basic education mandate, income has been stripped away from everything else that the state does, and I mean everything, from environmental protection, emergency preparedness, infrastructure construction, social services, across the board. Everything has been taking hits and cuts to divert money back in to basic education. So I guess this loops back in. To what you had to say that you know this is this is all interrelated. You can put forward a solution for the education financing question, but until you solve money in politics and solve reasonable sources of, of revenue for government, and until you solve you know, all of these other interrelated issues, you haven't solved everything. So, uh, I guess the good news is as progressives are, you know, we're never going to run out of stuff today. So, uh, as always, stay awesome, Jay.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And I was definitely uh, glad to hear Montessori School brought up, you know, all those uh, non-traditional schooling systems. I I would love to hear more on it. You know, if you have direct or even indirect contact with either Montessori or homeschool or the unschooling movement or anything non-traditional and you have something you want to share, I would love to hear it. Basically, just having had no contact with any of those school systems myself, I just feel sort of undereducated and maybe you could enlighten us. Uh, speaking of non-traditional by American standards, I want to let you know just a quick programming note. I'm taking a vacation day on uh, this coming Friday, so it'll be a re- rerun instead of a regular show. The reason for that primarily—well, I mean, first of all, the, the real reason is I have to go to a, an out-of-town wedding. But I thought to myself, well, I guess— I have two options. I could panic and work double hard and try to squeeze in, you know, two episodes in the three days I'll be in town and have one prepped ahead of time, or I could not panic and not do that and not overwork myself and give myself time to prepare and pack and do all the stuff I need to do to go on the trip, and everyone can just relax. And the thing is, for the past, I don't know, month and a half or two months, I've read about 10 books that are all sort of uh, circling the intersection of happiness and economics and work and uh, a little bit of climate change in there and, you know, environment. And, uh, you know, one of the big lessons is uh, Americans work too much. It's bad for us, it's bad for the environment it doesn't make us happier it doesn't really do you know any good for anyone and if anything it's uh, destructive so i thought look like what what am i going to do uh, talk the talk and not walk the walk obviously i need to put myself where my values are and not show up to work so that's what's happening later this week and obviously there's no need to panic because we'll be right back to normal immediately afterwards. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode...
4: Wonder what we're missing We can't see past our sad songs.